right now and forever and ever and ever and ever more. All authority is his, and we get to today turn our attention to where it should be on a regular basis, to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So as we remain standing, let me read from our passage today, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 4, maybe a little bit more, but uh, hear the word of the living God. For I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, in accordance with the scriptures, buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, and he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. This is the word of the living God. May he write its truths on our hearts this day as we turn our attention to the most brilliant of gems in the Lord's treasure chest, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you that we can look into your word again today and call our hearts and minds back to the thing of first importance, which is your gospel. So Lord, I pray that as we study this core value today of our church, that each of our hearts and lives would exemplify through faith, responding to your grace, this gospel, this good news. So we, your favor upon us as we attend to your word today, and I pray that you would use me, you know my weaknesses, and I pray, oh God, that your word and your truth would shine forth in a way that would encourage and bless your precious people. May they listen well today for, for the glory of Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. And we are in a series of month, for the month of January where we're, we often do this in January, kind of kick off the year, reminding ourselves of of really the central truths uh, primarily for us as a church. And so we've got four core values as a church in our mission as we exist to glorify God by making disciples of all nations. And the core values of our church have been worship, gospel, family, and mission. So today, last week we talked of worship. Today we will speak on the gospel. And then the next two Sundays we'll look at family and mission. And so I want to ask you, uh, the, the central thrust of, of the message today is this, that the gospel is the main thing. It ought to be the thing of first importance, and I would ask you to think about that for a second. What is of first importance in your life, in your heart? What is your main thing? What are you, what are you most passionate about? What thrills your heart the most? What do you love to talk about? What drives your affections? When you're struggling, where does your mind go? And what do you think about? What defines you? And I will submit to you today that the thing that should define us, that should be our greatest passion, the thing that should be the overarching truth that motivates us in all of our work and affects every part of our lives, whether when you get up in the morning, what's your first thought when you put your head on your pillow, what's your last thought for the day when you're going to work and you're on your commute, when you're peeling potatoes, getting dinner ready? What is driving your thoughts? And my challenge and encouragement as a church is that the gospel of Jesus Christ would be that overarching truth. The truth that Jesus Christ died for our sins and he rose again on the third day. 
Jerry Bridges said this, the gospel is not only the most important message in all of history, it's the only essential message in all of history. And so certainly it should be the main thing. So for us today and for a church as we move forward and continue on, the gospel is the main thing and I will work with everything within me and the eldership here, and, and I will call upon the members to do this very thing, to make the gospel of Jesus Christ the main thing in our church and in our lives. We're going to look at the gospel of this, this sermon today a little bit differently, kind of like we did last week. We're going to ask some questions, the what, the why, and the how. We looked at the what, the why, how, and worship, and today we're going to look at the what, the why, and the how of the gospel. So number one, what is the gospel? Number two, why is the gospel so important? And then number three, how should we respond to the gospel? So let's start with point number one. What is the gospel? And I think it's helpful for us to to start with definition. Let's define it because you say the word, right? It could mean a whole lot of different things to different people. I mean, some people just think of it as a genre of music. Other people, you know, think you you, you ask uh, 10 people, you get 11 different definitions of what gospel is. So we got to understand what it means. And let's start with the word itself. Everybody know, what, what does the word mean in English? Gospel means good news. It's good news, right? And it's helpful to understand where that word comes from. Evangelion is, is the Greek word. And in the, back in the Greco-Roman world, that word gospel literally meant what it means in the English, good news. It was a term that would be applied to any historical event of such significance that it actually changed the course of of history for those to whom it was proclaimed. And so when Caesar Augustus was born in the Greco-Roman world, they would have said that is a gospel. That is gospel. That's good news because to them, his, his birth promised a new era of prosperity and the blessing from their pagan gods from the whole Roman world. And so it was a word that was common during the ancient days that, that was known as that was the good news. So anything that was, was life-affecting and life-altering that happened majorly, historically, was gospel. This was good news. And so the, so the early Christians, obviously, being a part of that culture, they used that word to sum up the central message about Jesus Christ. Here Paul uses it in our text. In 1 Corinthians 15, and and again, understanding the context of why he's writing here. He's, he's about to, uh, to make an argument for why the Christians there in Corinth should not be following the pagan and uh, Greco-Roman culture in their understanding of resurrection. So in that culture, there, there was the, this idea that things that are material and physical are bad and and, and not good, and then things that are spiritual and ethereal are good. And so certainly there were Christians that had grown up in this culture that under, you know, the body is always bad. And so a body resurrected isn't a good thing. A spirit resurrected is a good thing. But to get a body resurrected, that's not a good thing in their culture. And so these Christians were coming believing in the resurrection of Christ, but failing to understand the truth that would transform their lives, that they too, because of Christ, would be resurrected just as he was. That his power would transform their mortal bodies into glorified bodies one day. And so they were struggling to believe that. So he's going to argue against that throughout chapter 15, but he starts the argument with the foundation of the good news. Because that's where it all begins. He says in verse 1, now I would remind you, brothers, this isn't something that they have not heard before. And just like you and I, it's probably not something that you're hearing for the first time. Much of what I'm preaching to you today is something you've heard time and time again. However, just like the Corinthians, we tend to forget. And so lest we forget, unless we fail to to work in, in making the gospel the main thing of our lives, let's Be reminded, brothers and sisters, as Paul says, I would remind you of the gospel that I preached. And that word is actually the verb form of the word gospel, preached. So in essence, he's saying, I'm reminding you of the gospel that I gospelized to you. 
I gave you this good news. It was a proclamation of good news, and I've given it to you time and again, so let me remind you of what the news actually is. He says, this is good news that you received. You took it. You believe it. You walk in it. You, you made it your, 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 your life fuel and, and mission and goal. You responded to it. You received it. And he says, in which you stand. And so this is a truth that we need to, to know and remember. The gospel, a lot of times people think it's just for the, the non-Christian. This is for the unsaved. And before I came to Christ, I heard the gospel, I responded, and then I, I move on from there. He's saying, no, this gospel that I gospelized to you is something that you need time and again because you received it, and it's the same thing in which you're standing on today. You don't leave. You're established in the gospel. So you receive it. You're established in it, verse 2, and by which you are being saved. Notice the present tense, not just how you came to Christ. It's not just how you got saved. It's how you're being saved, how you're being kept by God is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. And then verse 3, he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance, firstly, priority, the number one priority, Paul says, to the Corinthian church that I preached to you, that I gave you, is what I also received from the Lord Jesus himself. It's what he gave me. And then I gave it to you and you've received it. So I'm reminding you of what that is and what is it? What is this good news? He tells us that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried. And that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Notice how he ties in the scriptures constantly. He's saying you were prof- this, this was told to you. This was prophesied. This is the way God had planned it from the beginning. And now it's happened. And now you've, you, 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 you know this good news. You understand this good news. And it's a pretty simple message. But it's transformative. He starts, well, let us start as we look through these elements of the gospel with, with, and I just want to kind of take you down through a little bit deeper into each of these elements here of why this is such good news because it's, you know, we really don't gain a great understanding of the gospel without first recognizing our own rebellion against a perfect holy God and that there's severe consequences that are justly deserved as a result of man's rebellion against a holy God. And so, so we've got to begin, before we get to good news, with bad news, right? It's amazing. And here's the truth. A lot of people don't want to hear the bad news, but only, only God can show us how we're wretched sinners and then at the same time make it the greatest news we've ever heard. That's how great he is. So let's talk of the dilemma, the great dilemma. And as we talk of it, we're going to see two dilemmas here. Our sinfulness and God's holiness. What's the great dilemma of man? Our sinfulness and God's holiness. And let me say, what's the great dilemma for God himself? Our sinfulness and his holiness. Because the gospel is the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it's not just for us. It's, it's God's good news. Because how can he make sinners just and be just himself? So how is, how is he going to do this? How is he going to work out forgiving sins? He's just going to let us off the hook? So we've we got to start, though, and understand our, our own sinfulness. Martin Luther said this, a person must confront his own sinfulness in all its ravaging depths before he can enjoy the comforts of salvation. Let's just go back to basics here for a minute. What is sin? We understand sin is is any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, attitude, or nature. A definition from Grudem's Systematic Theology book I thought was good. We fail to conform to the moral law of God in our actions, in our attitudes, our minds, our thinking, and by very nature. So we're sinners by not only by by, by deed, but by nature. We were born into it. J.C. Ryle said a sin consists in doing, saying, thinking, or imagining anything that is not in perfect conformity with the mind and law of God. And so we see sin as what it truly is, 
the true nature of sin, what is it? It's, it's essentially rebellion against God. It's not just I made a boo-boo or, I, or even I hurt someone. Sin ultimately, yes, will hurt people, but sin ultimately, every sin is a rebellion against God. It's cosmic treason against a holy God, against His perfections. And the Bible tells us that sin is universal. There's no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. All of us are sinners. Not one of us has escaped. If you were born, anybody here not been born? All right, we're all concluded then. If you were born, you are in sin by nature. And you sin because you are a sinner. God's holiness and wrath, let's consider that for a moment. That's the other facet of this grave dilemma. It's found in the character of God himself because man's sinful Struggle can't be fully grasped until it's viewed through the lens of God's perfect purity and holiness. The Bible portrays God and tells us that He is holy. He's holy, holy, holy. He's transcendent. He's so far above us we can't even grasp it. And He's morally perfect. And in His holiness, because He's holy, He must respond with fierce opposition to sin. That's what we mean when we speak of God's wrath. Wrath is God's response in His holiness to sin. It's His his personal, active antagonism to sin that derives from His settled opposition to everything evil. And therefore, it's, it's right and necessary for God to hate sin and to punish all who practice it. Habakkuk the prophet said in chapter 1 verse 13, you who are of purer eyes than to see evil, cannot look at wrong. John Stott wrote these words, the wrath of God is his steady, unrelenting, unremitting, uncompromising antagonism to evil in all its forms and manifestations. And as, let's be honest, as people, we start cringing when we hear things like that. We don't like that. Some have even come to think that the idea of wrath is somehow unjust or or unbecoming to a God of love. And it's largely because we underestimate both the extent and the seriousness of sin and we underestimate the holiness of God. Not only is God perfectly justified in His wrath, but without it, his, His very character would be compromised. His holiness. And so in light of God's holiness, we understand that sin has deep and grave inevitable consequences. It, it brings a broken relationship with God. Isaiah 59.2, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God and your sins have hidden its face from you so that He does not hear. We're separated from God and sin and in that separation there's an enslavement to sin and to Satan. That's why in Colossians 1.13 when the Apostle Paul tells the the Colossian church about their salvation, he frames it in this way. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son. There's a domain of darkness that every sinner is a part of until God does His great work of salvation. There's also consequences in life. All the sorrow and pain and suffering the sweat and the tears and the strife and the sickness and, and death, all that we experience were not part of God's original good creation. They're all a result of Genesis 3 when sin entered into the world through Adam. And then we see the ultimate, final, and, and irrevocable punishment for all who die in sinful rebellion against God is separation in hell from God's good and beneficent presence. The Bible speaks of eternal punishment for sinners. And so we have, we have before us as we look at the gospel things to consider. Most of us have been to job interviews, right? When you go to a job interview, usually you type something up, call the resume. 
and you bring your resume and, and perhaps you bring your references and you bring your, all the things that why they should hire you, right? Your resume and your rap sheet. You bring them both. Look at it this way, that one day each and every one of us will have an interview with God. And we'll hand him a resume and a rap sheet. And that rap sheet and that resume will have our righteousness on it. Our our standing, if you will, before him based on the quality of life that we present to him. We all certainly have our our accomplishments, our our qualities on our resume. We also have all of the ways we've fallen short and of God's perfect standards on our rap sheet. And together, if you will, like we could say, that's your righteousness. And if you were to compare your life resume, the the one that you're going to hand to God on the day of your interview to other people you know, how do you think you'll measure up? That's what a lot of us do. We compare ourselves with others and we, we think about you know, and most of us, as we compare ourselves, we, we, we find ourselves on a scale somewhere between uh, Mother Teresa and Hitler. Somewhere along the line, right? That's where we'll place ourselves. And if you're like me, you're pretty good at noticing a whole lot of reasons why your status should be shifted up the scale. Ignoring all the reasons why your status should be shifted down the scale. Just like a resume that, that we would put together for a job interview, we would skillfully skew it from reality and the things that would be hidden of the things we may not want them to see. We're pretty, pretty good at painting a better picture of ourselves than is reality, aren't we? I think of uh, back in the end of World War II, Adolf Eichmann, who was the mastermind, a, a Nazi, horrible uh, man who was the mastermind of the final solution to the Nazis' plan to exterminate the Jews, and he committed such shocking and horrible crimes against humanity, and yet his captor, a guy named Peter Malkin, and all the journalists who sat and watched his trial were shocked by a couple things. One, they were surprised by how ordinary he seemed. If you're just in a room with him, talking with him, you wouldn't think monster. He was ordinary. He looked like every other man. Secondly, they were amazed by his capacity to justify his behavior. He easily excused his murderous life. In his own eyes, he was a decent guy and probably would not have ranked himself low on the scale of good and bad people. And that story... That man illustrates an important point about the truth of humanity. Even the worst people can justify themselves to themselves. But there's another important truth about humanity that we must reckon with. That even the best people cannot justify themselves to a holy God. The scale on on which our righteousness is measured does not have Mother Teresa at the top. It has a holy, holy, holy God. And if you doubt that, read Isaiah chapter 6, where there was a guy named Isaiah who, who was a whole lot, had a lot better resume than I, than you. And when he was brought into the vision of the throne room of God. His holiness didn't even come close to God's. He records his response when he comes face to face with the white hot holiness of God. What does he say? Woe is me! I'm undone. He doesn't even wait for God to pronounce the curse on him. He curses himself. I am a wicked man. I'm undone and and my people are undone. I'm a man of unclean lips and... Unclean lips? I thought you were God's chosen mouthpiece. See, but in the presence of the holy God, the contrast of a man's righteousness and God's holiness can't be compared. Even Isaiah could not stand before God with a resume, his own resume, expecting anything other than death. And if Isaiah could not, how could we? 
If we have to stand before God with our resume, with our rap sheet, we don't stand a chance. Our righteousness is not sufficient, and that is the clear message of the Bible. Enter the good news. There's another message that is good news. That there's a perfect righteousness that we have not earned that God will freely give to us. He will allow us to, to trade in our insufficient resume and receive a perfect resume, a perfect rap sheet, one that belongs to him, one that has his life on it, one that has his sacrificial death on it. And we can either stand before God with ours or with his. We can either put our faith in what we have done or what he has done. And the good news, the gospel, this proclamation is that our standing with God no longer needs to be based on what we have done, but can be based on what Jesus has done. And that, my friends, is great news. So let's look a bit deeper into the gospel. What's the motive for the gospel? What's the motive for this good news? The motive is God's love and mercy. See, the holiness of God demands that sin be punished And if God failed to punish sin, he would cease to be just. And if he ceased to be just, he'd cease to be God. But the Bible teaches that not only is God holy, God is also loving. That love is is essential to his very nature. According to 1 John 4, God is love. And even though we're deserving of eternal punishment, God, motivated by his infinite love, chose to take upon himself in the person of his Son, the full measure of divine wrath. This is what the apostle writes in 1 John 4, 9 and 10. (coughs) In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. This is the glory of the cross that we studied as we came to the end of Matthew. That God saved us in such a way, in in one and the same act, he, he preserved his uncompromising holiness and expressed his deep, fathomless love and mercy for all who believe. This is the gospel. Jesus Christ himself, according to Paul in Romans 3, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith, This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Dilemma solved. Man's and God's. He remains just and holy and in his great holy love he saves sinners. How? By punishing our sin in his own son. Beautiful. John Stott says, How then could God express simultaneously his holiness in judgment and his love in pardon only by providing a divine substitute for the sinner so that the substitute would receive the judgment and the sinner the pardon? Glorious gospel. What is the nature of the gospel? The nature is grace. Grace refers to God's free and unmerited favor. It's often been said we're saved by grace, and we are. And perhaps the best one-word summary for what God has done for us is that word, grace. It's grace. It's God freely bestowing His goodness onto people who deserve only punishment. Three things about the grace of God. First, God is in no way obligated to show kindness and mercy to anyone. Least of all those who have rebelled against Him. He owes us nothing. Secondly, we're completely unable to earn any merit from God. We, we stand condemned in the courtroom of justice. But third, God resolves to extend mercy and favor to us in spite of our guilt. How gracious is our God. And it's in this merciful, gracious resolve that, that the, is the source of our salvation and characterizes what Christ has done for us. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. 
What does this mean? This means that because we're saved by grace alone, we can never earn our salvation or contribute anything to it. It's by grace alone. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. We're understanding the nature and the motive, and let's look at the substance of the gospel. And the substance is the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's good news. The good news of God's saving work on our behalf through the person and the work of Jesus Christ, the Son of God and God the Son. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1-6, through 6, if, you, if you read that, you'll see he, he, the Apostle sums up in essence that Jesus Himself is the Gospel. He is the good news. In our, in our passage and, and throughout the Scripture, we see the Gospel having certain components to it because it's, it's news, which means it's history. It's not a made-up story. This is what happened. What happened? Jesus was born. Jesus was born. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. God entered human history in the man, Jesus Christ, born of the Virgin Mary. It also includes His life, His perfect, sinless life. And even though he was subject to all the temptations to we are subjected, he never once sinned in any way. The birth of Christ, the, the sinless life of Christ. Thirdly, Jesus' death on the cross. At the heart of, of his ministry stands the cross. And all his life had been a preparation for and leading up to that moment where at the cross... Jesus Christ poured Himself out as, a, as our substitute, as the one who would bear divine wrath on my part, on your part, for our salvation. It's substitutionary in nature, His death. Secondly, it's also because Jesus paid the penalty for our sins, God no longer holds us responsible to pay for our sin. Think about that. And then not only are our sins forgiven, but we're also justified. We're declared righteous by God. A legal term that speaks of right standing. In essence, you're given the resume of the perfect Holy One. The Gospel. Jesus' birth. His sinless life. His death on the cross. Fourthly, His resurrection from the dead. Demonstrating that His death was an acceptable sacrifice on our behalf. The wages of sin is death, the Scripture says. Death is the penalty for sin. And Jesus' conquest over death in the resurrection shows that sin has also been overcome. And then lastly, and here, fifthly, Jesus' ascension and return is a vital part of the Gospel. The ascension marking the beginning of His reign He now has all authority that's been given to Him as we saw in Matthew 28. And He rules and He reigns in heaven with the Father and He is building His church. He's defeating its enemies. He's interceding for His people. And at the time that God has determined, He will return to consummate His work and to initiate a new heaven and a new earth. And this reign will be forever and ever and ever. With Him for eternity, worshiping God, His people experiencing the full fruits of His saving work. That's where it's heading. That's where history is going. The Gospel is the best of news. This is the elements of the Gospel. But let's look briefly. Why is it so important? I mean, I, a lot of it I, I've already stated. But, but think about this with me. What is so good about this news? Let's start applying some of these things into how we think The good doctor, one of my favorites, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he explains that when when it comes to the gospel, that when a king went to war and lost, he would immediately send generals throughout the cities and the villages of of his domain to prepare the common people for war. Get your weapons ready. Put your armor on. Get get yourselves ready to go out and do battle. Why? Because the battle had been lost and the enemy would then be advancing to take the people captive. And if if anyone wanted to to live, they're going to have to fight for their lives. 
Fight for their livelihood. Fight for their hope and their, and, and their future. It basically, it's in their own hands now. Saying, we're done. The army's defeated. You're, in, you're on your own. He'd send the generals to go tell them and prepare them for that. However, on the other hand, Dr. Lloyd-Jones said that when a king won a great victory on the front lines and he won a great battle, he would send not generals but messengers, evangelists, gospelizers. He would send messengers to proclaim the good news throughout the cities and the villages of the empire. These men, they weren't generals telling the people to pull up your bootstraps and prepare for war, prepare for battle. No, they were messengers, evangelists, carrying the good news, the gospel, that the the livelihood, the, the hope, and the future of the people had been secured on their behalf by the king, though they themselves didn't lift a finger to do it. That's good news. You can live free now. You can live in victory now because of what the king has done for you. Lloyd-Jones goes on to say that the difference between sending generals and sending messengers is the difference between religion and the gospel message. little chart that's in your outline there gives his thoughts on this, comparing man's religion versus the gospel. What does the gospel say? It's news about what Jesus has done for us. Why religion is instructions about what we must do for God. That the gospel elicits joy and gratitude while man's religion elicits fear and and stress. That the gospel sends messengers who spread the good news that our lives are now safe because of King Jesus' victory. Or man's religion would send commanders who tell people they must fight for themselves if they want to save their lives. There's a massive difference here, isn't there? What good news is that? If you have to do it all yourself, in front of a holy God. The gospel declares that it is power for a reason. This is what Paul writes to the Romans at the beginning of the the great book of Romans, the greatest book of doctrine in the New Testament, I believe. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the good news. Why? For it is the power. It is the dunamis. It's the dynamite. It's the explosive power of God for salvation. To everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. This is why it's such good news, because of the power, the power for everyday life. And, And it's what makes the gospel unique amongst all the other religions of this world that are man centered and man focused. Some people would say, oh, no, every religion is basically the same, they all teach the same thing. Those people have never studied religions closely. Because while there are some similarities among religions, the message of the gospel makes Christianity fundamentally different across the board. And anyone whose life is shaped by the truth of the gospel as opposed to religion is going to have this completely different motive. Uh, your, Your motives are different. Your relationships are different. Your emotions are different. Your behaviors are different. How? Because of what Jesus has done on my behalf. He lived a life of perfect obedience in every way, as we've said. He was perfectly pleasing to God, absolutely faithful and entirely obedient. And when I respond to the gospel, when I put my faith in him, I'm asking God to to deal with me, not according to my own performance in life, but according to Jesus' performance on my behalf. And we are fundamentally shifting Everything about us, our our sense of worth and identity from ourselves, from our life, from our record to him and his life and his record. And when that happens, God no longer considers me a rebel against him, but treats me as a dearly beloved son. This is good news. It leads to deep, humble gratitude. It leads to motives of of a desire to flee from sin because it's incompatible with who I am in Christ. We also understand that his death as as a perfect substitute means he took the penalty against my sin. He drank the cup of of, of wrath against me that that, that I should have drunk, the one that that, that I, because of me and my sin, and he drank it every last drop.
have to recognize that my sin put Jesus on the cross. And that humbles me. But I also recognize that he freely chose to go to the cross for me. And that energizes me to live faithfully before him. And that's one of the reasons why Paul says that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. We're no longer guilty before God. We've been justified or made right with Him. We have peace with Him. Our moral failure does not hinder our relationship with God. We also understand in the Gospel how his, He rose from the death, dead and defeated sin, death, and hell. And by faith, because of His overcoming, I can... I can in him, I can walk in consistent victory over sin. The power of sin is defeated. The, I, can, I can overcome the patterns of sin in the world. I can overcome Satan's work. We can, church. The gospel does a miracle. It's power because it, it miraculously transforms the human heart from a rebel against God into a Christian, a little Christ. A new people, a new humanity created in and through the work of Jesus Christ. That's why it's power. It's the dynamic power of the Christian life that that leads to delighting in God and and heart-level obedience to His ways. Consider the following contrasts between religion and the Gospel. There's a chart that should be up here. The next one. Religion. The primary message is salvation is earned based on what you do for God. The gospel, salvation is a free gift based on what God has done for you. How about obedience? What does obedience do with the gospel? What does it have to do with it? In, in religion, I begrudgingly obey God because I have to earn His acceptance. And oftentimes, because of that, I resent Him. I'm not happy with him. I see him as just this cranky guy that just wants to zap me all the time. But in the gospel, I gladly obey because I freely received his acceptance and I delight in honoring God. How about my relationship with God? In religion, I'm always uncertain about my right standing before God because I never know if I've done enough to please him. The result is anxiety, insecurity. I fear God and not in a biblical way. I fear him in a man, man, human way of, of uh, he's going to get me. In the gospel, I'm always certain of my right standing before God because Jesus has already done enough for God to be pleased with me. The result is peace and security and a response of love for God. In religion, how do we view ourselves? My self-view is constantly changing because it's based on how well I do at any given moment. When I do poorly, I'm, I'm downcast and despondent. When I do well, I'm prideful and I pat myself on the back. In the gospel, my self-view stays grounded in the fact that my value is based on what Jesus has already done for me. And when I do poorly, I'm humbled because I'm reminded of my need for a Savior. But I'm not despondent because I have an all-sufficient Savior. And when I do well, I'm grateful because God's at work in my life, but I'm not prideful because it's more God's work than mine. It's the power of the gospel. How do we view others? In religion, since my identity is based on what I accomplish and how moral I am, I judge people who are worse than me. And then I'm jealous of people who are quote-unquote better than me. In the gospel, since my identity is based on what Jesus accomplished for me and how moral he was, I sympathize with people who are quote-unquote worse than me because I need a Savior just as much as they do. And then I celebrate those who are quote-unquote better than me because their lives honor the Savior I love. You see the vast difference? This is the power of the gospel, the power to transform the human heart, the good news that says we have been saved from the penalty of sin because of Jesus' life and death. Notice the tense, past, past tense. The gospel says, and we are being saved from the power of sin because of Jesus' resurrection and ascension. Power right now in the present. And then thirdly, we will be saved from the very presence of sin because of Jesus' return. This is the future. 
Tell me better news than to have your past, your present, and your future completely covered by a holy God who loves you and gave himself for you. This is the good news. This is the power. The power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It's an accomplished event from the past. It's an ongoing experience in the present. And it's a coming reality in the future. And it drives us as the people of God. It drives our identities. It drives our values. Think of our other values. It's what fuels our worship. You come and worship God when we gather on Sunday together because you're fueled by your your response to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It forms us into a family. When we become part of God's family because of the gospel, we get brothers and sisters. We become a family of God. And it's the foundation of our mission We're going forth sent with the message to proclaim. And it's a simple gospel. Well, how do we respond? How should we respond, point three? Well, let me, before I answer this, the simple answer is there in your notes that we are to live in repentance and faith for the glory of God. The call to respond when the gospel is proclaimed, no matter where you are, whether you're a non-believer or whether you've been walking with Christ for 50 years, when you hear the good news, how do you respond? I repent of my sin and I put my faith and trust in Christ. And that changes everything. But as we step back and just examine ourselves for a little bit, not too long, Because sometimes we spend way too much time examining our own selves, looking inward, then looking up at the cross. As Robert Murray Machane said, for every one glance you take inward at yourself, take ten glances to the cross. Because we we get here and we start looking in and we see our failures and all our how how our struggles and everything that's messed up about us and what God's not finished with yet and we get downcast and we start getting discouraged and we we go inward instead of going outward to look at the good news and hear it again and let it be proclaimed in our ears again. And perhaps maybe even though we're like the people of Corinth who had been so integrated into their world, their Greco-Roman culture, that even when they heard the gospel, they misapplied it because they said, that's great for Jesus, but it doesn't affect me because I'm not rising from the dead one day. And they were dead wrong. And perhaps you've thought the same, well, I'm glad Jesus rose from the dead. Yes, I believe it, but it's not changing my life. And you're dead wrong. The gospel of Jesus Christ is transformative power. Get your eyes on it and never take them off. We believe that the gospel separates Christianity from from any and every other religion. And that his redemptive work, it's, it's not an end in itself. It's the means to an end, which is God's glory rolling back sin. Because that's what he's doing. He's conquering sin. He, he, he's bringing us somewhere. He's he's calling us back to the garden where he created us as as these perfect beings who fell into sin and we're heading towards another garden, a garden city, a new heavens and a new earth where sin will be forever crushed and and done away with. And it's not some ethereal sit on a cloud and play a harp future. It's a real future with real bodies, resurrected bodies. Bodies where we will forever work and serve and love and worship our God. What a response to the gospel. And so let us, as Christians, as gospel people, let's remember and rejoice in and live out what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Which means both a growing awareness of our sinfulness, because that leads to a deeper humility, And that's part of the challenge of when you are maturing in your Christian life. The the more you walk with Christ, the more you spend time in the Word and read your Bible, a lot of times we think that we're just, we're going to keep, you know, uh, that we we dealt with sin a while back, right? It's all, no. God will show you more. He'll show you more. He'll show you more. And and He's going to, all right, you conquered that. All right, here's another one. Why? Because He's got a goal for you, He's making you look like His Son. 
He's making you a bearer of his image that, that glorifies him and shines the light of the gospel to a dark world. And so we repent, and we repent with a new motivation, not out of, oh, don't zap me, God. We repent knowing, according to Romans 2, 4, that God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. So we stare at the cross. We gaze at the gem of the gospel in order to, to be led by the kindness of God to repent more and more and deeper and deeper. And then we look with faith. We say with the Apostle Paul, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We repent with a new motivation and we trust in faith with a new purpose. It transforms our work because we are supposed to work. Ephesians 2 told us that we're been saved by grace through faith. It's not our own doing. It's a gift of God. It's, it's, it's not a result of works so that no one may boast. Why? For we are His workmanship. We're created in Christ Jesus. We're saved in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The gospel power is to transform our daily living. It affects everything. And we need to regularly review it and never grow past it. As he told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15, it's, in, it's the thing in which you stand. You never move on from the gospel. Your daily habits are formed and informed by it. You preach the gospel to yourself daily. We don't ever move beyond it. I ask you, do you really think you could grow past it? Do you think that the truth of the cross and the resurrection is something you've already adequately grasped? You got it down pat. You're ready to move on. We never move on. And if you've thought of moving on from it, perhaps that's why you lack joy. Or you're not consistently growing. Or you lack the passion that you wish you had for Christ. Or you're always looking for some new thing to give you that exhilarating experience instead of being thrilled in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christianity is fundamentally about learning how to live as a new person in Christ where your heart is set on him and your life is the overflow of your joy in God. And so how do we live? As one author said, it's about doing everyday things with gospel intentionality. So I'll close with a quote from a great little book living the cross-centered life. I think the men studied that last year by a guy named C.J. Mahaney. He said this, if there's anything in life that we should be passionate about, it's the gospel. And I don't mean passionate about, only about sharing it with others. I mean passionate about thinking about it, dwelling on it, rejoicing in it, allowing it to color the way we look at the world. Only one thing can be of first importance to each of us and only the gospel ought to be. May it change our hearts. May it change our minds, the way we think. May we not be influenced by the ways of the world away from the gospel to disbelieve it. And may we proclaim it, both in our words and in our lives.